Hi, this is Chris Date, and you're listening to the The Apologetics Podcast, episode 39, This Generation Shall Not Pass. Well, it's been over two weeks since I published a debate between my friend Michael Burgos and Oneness Pentecostal James Anderson. Uh, I had hoped to do a post-mortem soon afterwards, discussing with Mike what went well and what didn't go quite so well. But unfortunately, Mike hasn't yet been available, so uh, look forward to that in the near future. But to fill a gap until then, I've sent out some emails trying to arrange interviews for upcoming episodes. Uh, I wanted to talk to somebody who could defend dualism from the physicalist uh, position that my friend Dr. Glenn Peoples defended on my show several episodes ago. Um, I haven't gotten responses there yet. I've also reached out to uh, a friend of mine who wants to come on the show to talk about the International House of Prayer, but unfortunately he hasn't been available yet either. And as I was trying to think about what topic I could do on my own uh, until either the postmortem or some other interview, um, the topic that came to my mind was the phrase, this generation, as used by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse. Uh, you know, we talked about this in the interview with Dee Dee Warren several episodes ago, and uh, and, you know, what came to my mind is that preterists will, I think, justifiably insist that the context of those words demand a first century fulfillment. But what preterists also tend to do is concede that in isolation, the word for generation there, Ghanaia, uh, can mean something other than Jesus' contemporary Jews. Um, I'm, however, convinced that that's not the case. And so I decided I'm going to do an episode on this, looking at how this generation and how Ghanaia are used throughout the Bible. It's actually something I want to write a scholarly paper on, something that maybe can be peer-reviewed and published, because, like I said, I think preterists concede the point too often, and uh, I think that if I'm right about the argument that you're going to be listening to shortly, I think that it would be a real contribution to scholarship in this area. Um, I'm also going to probably publish the uh, what you're going to listen to in the Preterist podcast pretty soon. I think that uh, her listeners would really benefit from this information as well. Uh, Dee Dee Warren actually reviewed the original recording of, of the content that you're going to be listening to shortly, um, and she gave me some good feedback that I've updated and uh, and have recorded again. Um, so hopefully her hopefully her comments you know will will, will end up proving helpful. <laughs> now before we get into that though, <clears throat> there are a couple of announcements I want to make. Three of them actually. First, uh, I've been speaking with Matt Slick from the Christian Apologetics and Research Ministry, CARM.org. Uh, and he has agreed to come on my show at some point in the future to discuss women pastors and elders, something that he's been passionate about lately. Um, so I'm looking forward to interviewing him on my show, and I hope you'll look forward to that as well. I think it's an important issue. It's one that I haven't addressed yet, but it's one that I have strong feelings about. Um, so, you know, that should be coming up in the near future. Second, <clears throat> speaking of Matt Slick, I've called in his show a few times recently to talk about uh, physicalism, um, which, I, as I mentioned, Dr. Glenn Peoples came to t- uh, on my show to talk to me about a while ago. Um, now, Matt and I both agree that it seems like the, the the most problematic issue for physicalism is the Christological implications. Um, something I haven't talked about on this show yet, and which weren't talked, which we didn't talk about when I spoke with Dr. Glenn uh, Dr. Glenn Peoples. Sorry, by the way, I'm stumbling so much. I don't really have a script prepared, unlike usual. I'm trying to uh, develop the ability to speak more off the cuff. So, <laughs> bear with me. Anyway, I don't want to give too much away about what I think the Christological implications are, um, but. What I have done is I've reached out to uh, Nancy Murphy, who is a professor at uh, Fuller Theological Seminary, um, to ask her if she would come on my show to fill in some of the holes that I think were left by uh, Dr. People's appearance. Now, unfortunately, Nancy Murphy doesn't have time, and and so she suggested Joel Green, who's the Associate Dean for the Center of Advanced Theological Studies and Professor of New Testament Interpretation there at Fuller Fuller Theological Seminary. and, and I, I asked Glenn if he thought that that would be a good person to have on my show, and he, he said it was a great idea. Glenn has spent some time with uh, Joel Green personally and, and recommended him as well. So I'm going to email uh, Joel Green and see if I can get him on my show to talk about the Christological implications of physicalism, as he is a physicalist, um, as well as perhaps some other issues. So if, if you're at all interested in the dualism-physicalism debate, I'll be looking forward to that episode as well, um, Lord willing, that, uh, that it takes place. Third and finally, uh, on a personal note, 
I'm really excited to to find to let you know that my wife is pregnant. <laughs> um, we're not sure exactly how far along we are or when the due date is, um, but uh, we found out recently, and this will be our fourth child if the Lord's will is that uh, everything goes according to plan. Now we have three boys already at uh, almost ten years, uh, almost ten year old, a six year old, and a two year old. And suffice it to say that my wife is a little bit overwhelmed by the amount of testosterone in our household. And so we're really hoping for a girl. Um, I think that, uh, you know, we will be in the end comfortable with whatever God's plan is for us. But uh, we're praying that it will be a girl if it's the Lord's will. And, you know, I know that many of you listeners don't know me personally or whatever. But if, if you're at all inclined to keep me in your prayers, please pray that uh, that if it's the Lord's will, he would bless us with a girl. Um I've watched uh, movies like Father of the Bride and and stuff like that, and um, <laughs> I'm really I really would like the experience of being able to walk a daughter down the aisle, disassemble my handgun in front of dates, <laughs> you know, to, to intimidate them, that kind of thing. So um, yeah, we're we're really hoping for a girl, and I'd ask that you pray for us in that regard if you're so inclined. Anyway, I guess that's about all I really want to say, and that'll move us into today's promo for Justin Brierley's unbelievable radio program. You're unbelievable. Okay, so you've got their book, read their blog, and downloaded their talks, but where can you hear the arguments of your favorite defenders of faith actually being put forward in the context of a live radio debate? Only one place. Unbelievable is the show and podcast that brings together Christians and non-Christians to discuss apologetics, the Bible, philosophy, God, science, evolution, design, different worldviews and ethics every single week. How can the text of the Bible be authoritative if we can't agree on what the text was. Bart's position is that we don't have the original writings. I would say that we do. We don't have the original copies, but we do have the original writing. Professor Dawkins and others acknowledge that there is no evolutionary explanation for the origin of the first life. That caused being agency or mind. God. Do you mean God when you say I, agency? God, is a, God, I mean God. Is a, I think it's a likely candidate. But Most atheists feel if life is eternal, then life is cheap. Jesus talked about life in all its fullness, and life in all its fullness requires um, a relationship with the person who called us into existence. I'm Justin Briley, the host of the show, and I'd like to encourage you to tune in to Cutting Edge Apologetics Debate from the heart of London, England at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You can download the podcast, join the forum, and get in touch wherever you are around the world. That's unbelievable. The show that brings together Christians and non-Christians, podcasting every Saturday at premier.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. You're unbelievable. Unbelievable with Justin Brierley is available on Premier Christian Radio in the UK, Saturdays from 2.30 to 4 p.m., you can also download episodes shortly after they air by subscribing to the Unbelievable Podcast, which you can find at premierradio.org.uk forward slash unbelievable. And I've included a link in the show notes to make it easier to get there. I really highly recommend the show. It's very thought-provoking and challenging, and I think that you'll really grow in your faith as a result of listening. I know that I have. I'm particularly excited for this upcoming episode. Uh, in fact, I think it should be posted in the podcast in about 24 hours or so. Uh, it's going to feature Rob Bell in a discussion over hell and universalism. So those of you in particular who have followed the Rob Bell scandal might want to check it out. I know that I'll be listening. So with that, let's move into today's topic. In my interview with my friend Dee Dee Warren back in episode 17 and 18, as well as in my call to Greg Kokel's Stand to Reason, which I commented on in episode 19, we looked at what is today in the church in America a minority view of the so-called end times, a view Dee Dee Warren and I hold, among others, called preterism. Whereas most American Christians today believe that the Great Tribulation, the Antichrist, and a number of other prophecies will find their fulfillment in the future, we preterists believe most of those were fulfilled in the past, in and around the destruction of the Jerusalem Temple in AD 70. In those episodes, we looked at a statement Jesus made, which is infamous amongst we who are particularly interested in the study of eschatology. Jesus said in Matthew 24:34, Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. 
Given the assumptions of most Christians in America today, it's understandable that this verse has troubled many of them and has given skeptics reason to question the truthfulness of Jesus' prophetic claims. After all, consider the things Jesus apparently includes in all these things. He says in verse 14 that the gospel would be preached to the whole world. He says in verse 21 that there would be a great tribulation such as will never occur after it. In verse 27, he says that the coming of the Son of Man will be like lightning flashing from east to west. Perhaps more striking, he says in verse 29 that the sun and moon will go dark and that the stars will fall from the sky. And in verse 30, he says that they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds with power and great glory. And in verse 31, that he will send his angels to gather the elect. Many Christians think the events Jesus described above are obvious in meaning, and therefore find themselves wondering what Jesus could possibly have meant by this generation. But preterists like Didi and myself think that the meaning of this generation is what's obvious. So obvious, in fact, that while our view does not hinge solely upon this verse, not by any stretch of the imagination, nevertheless it is one of the verses which we think most strongly supports preterism and which cannot properly be understood by any view which holds that the events Jesus foretells are yet to happen in our future. Clearly, I, th clearly, I think anyway, the Lord said that they would take place before the generation of his contemporaries would pass away. As dispensationalist Thomas Isis said, when you talk to a preterist, get ready to hear the words this generation at least eight dozen times if you have an extended conversation. <laughs> and, you know, he's right. Non-preterists have for nearly 2,000 years tried to understand the phrase this generation in ways which allow them to be uh, understood as saying that the events Jesus foretold um, correspond to the second coming, prophecies which have yet to be fulfilled. In a paper entitled A Critique of Preterism, Donald E. Green outlines some eight interpretations of the phrase throughout the history of the church and criticizes preterists like myself for claiming that Jesus' meaning is as obvious as we claim it is. He writes, The briefest acquaintance with these many views, most of which are held by several interpreters, should dispel preterism's brash assertion that the phrase is indisputably clear. Now think about this carefully for a moment. Does the mere fact that theologians have understood the verse in a variety of ways suggest that the true intended meaning isn't obvious? Does the simple existence of multiple competing interpretations prove that Jesus' words are elusive or unclear? No, of course not. Professing Christians have disagreed over a number of passages, many of which most Orthodox Christians would agree have obvious meanings. Take the debate I hosted in the last two episodes of my podcast, for example. I think Christians throughout the history of the church would have agreed that Jesus' garden prayer in John 17, in which he asked that his Father would glorify him with the glory he had before the world began, obviously demonstrates that the Father and Son have eternally existed and are eternally distinct. But that doesn't stop oneness Pentecostals and Jehovah's Witnesses and others from claiming otherwise. So the fact is that we preterists might be correct in saying that the meaning of Matthew 24:34 is indisputably clear. And there may be a number of reasons why non-preterists have understood it differently. I'll admit, for example, that the language of the Olivet Discourse seems on the surface to speak of events which could not possibly have happened yet, happened yet. And so I can understand why many Christians therefore think this generation must refer to something other than the generation of Jesus' contemporaries. But, but if that can't be, if the meaning of the phrase is as obvious as we preterists claim it is, then we must seek an alternative understanding of the foretold events, one which allows them to have been fulfilled in that first century. In today's episode, we're going to look at how the authors of Scripture use the phrase, this generation, as well as the Greek word rendered generation. We'll look at how they used these in the New Testament, and we'll look at how they're used in the Septuagint, a translation of the Hebrew Scriptures into Greek by Jewish translators in the centuries leading up to the time of Christ, and which was quoted frequently in the New Testament. We'll see how this should inform our understanding of Jesus' use of the phrase in the Olivet Discourse. We won't interact closely with non-preterist understandings of the phrase, although we may do so in future episodes, but we will look briefly at some of them and see if they do justice to the way this language is used elsewhere in Scripture. I want to begin by looking at the word translated generation, the Greek word genea. Whereas I think most would agree that its typical meaning is the people of a particular generation, that is, the people alive at a certain time, it's been said that it can also refer to nativity, stock, family, kind, race, those kinds of things, and certain lexicons would support that. Hence, according to Donald Green, whom I mentioned earlier, some Christian interpreters have understood this generation in Matthew 24, 34 to refer to the human race in general or to the Jewish race, there's the meaning of family or race that I mentioned, or to faithful Christians in general or to an evil people in general, 
there's the meaning of kind or disposition. What I want to point out at this point, before we look at how Ganea is used elsewhere, is that the authors of the New Testament and the translators of the Old had a perfectly good Greek word to communicate this idea of kind or race, that word being genos. Jesus said in Matthew 13:47 that the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. There's genos. Mark describes in chapter 7, verse 26 of his gospel that there was a Gentile woman of the Syrophoenician race. And there's genos. Jesus said in Mark 9:29 that this kind of demon cannot come out by anything but prayer. That word kind is genos. In Acts 13:26, Paul speaks of the children of the stock or family of Abraham. And that word stock or family is genos. And he speaks of various kinds of tongues using genos in 1 Corinthians 12.10. The Jewish translators of the Septuagint used the word genos in a similar way. They translated Genesis 1.11's bearing fruit after their kind using genos, doing so throughout Genesis 1.6 and 7 where they refer to kinds of plants and creatures and beasts. They used genos to translate Esther 2.10 which says Esther did not make known her people or her kindred, genos. When God said in Genesis 11:6 that, Behold, they are one people, the translators used genos, as they did with Genesis 17:14 when it says that person shall be cut off from his people. They used it to translate Exodus 5:14 when it speaks of the sons of Israel. The Hebrew text of Leviticus 21:13 says the priest shall take a wife in her virginity, but the translators of the Septuagint added genos to say he shall take for a wife a virgin of his own tribe. But they didn't have to add the word to verses 14 and 17, which refer to the priest's people and Aaron's offspring, which they translated using genos. And where the Hebrew of Esther 3.13 says letters were sent to kill all Jews, the translators of the Septuagint used genos to say a message was sent to destroy utterly the race of the Jews. And I could go on. This is a sampling of how the word is used. So... It seems pretty clear that if a Greek-speaking Jew wanted to refer to a race or tribe or kind of people, he would use genos, not genea. And to transition our study into how genea is used, let's look at a verse in which both words appear, Job 8.8, 8, which reads, Please inquire of past generations and consider the things searched out by their fathers. The Septuagint renders this verse, Ask of the former generation and search diligently among the race of our fathers. The word they used, which is translated race, is genos, but the word they used, which is translated generation, is, you got it, genea. In the New Testament, this is how genea is frequently used. Matthew 1.17 says, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. Jesus says in Matthew 17.17, 17, Mark 9.19, and Luke 9.41, you unbelieving and perverted generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Clearly, Jesus has in mind his contemporaries, those with whom he was present at that time, but wouldn't be for long. In Luke 1.48, Mary says, From this time on, all generations will count me blessed. And in verse 50 says, God's mercy is upon generation after generation. In Acts 13.36, Paul says, David served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep, and was laid among his fathers. And in case it needs pointing out, generation and not fathers is what's translated from Ganea. Acts 14.16 says, In the generations gone by, God permitted all the nations to go their own ways. And again, in case, in case it needs pointing out, generations and not nations is what's translated from Ganea. Acts 15.21 says, Moses from ancient generations has in every city those who preach him. Paul speaks of the mystery of Christ in Ephesians 3, which, according to verse 5, in other generations was not made known to the sons of men. And verse 21 says, To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. He repeats the language about the mystery of Christ in Colossians 1.26, saying it has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints. So in the New Testament, this is how Ganea is used to refer to a uh, group of people alive at a certain time. The translators of the Septuagint used Ganea in the same way. Genesis 6.9 reads, These are the records of the generations of Noah, and then goes on to list successive generations of Noah's descendants. God says in Genesis 9.12, This is the sign of the covenant for all successive generations. Jesus, uh, Genesis 15.16 says, In the fourth generation they will return here. The Lord says in Genesis 17, 7, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. 
Exodus 12.14 says, Throughout your generations you are to celebrate it as a permanent ordinance. Exodus 17.16 says, The Lord will have war against Amalek from generation to generation. Numbers 32.13 says, God made Israel wander in the wilderness for 40 years until the entire generation of those who had done evil in the sight of the Lord was destroyed. Deuteronomy 7.9 says, God is faithful, keeping his covenant and his loving kindness to a thousandth generation with those who love him. Deuteronomy 29.22 speaks of the generation to come. Psalm 22.30 says, Posterity will serve him. It will be told of the Lord to the coming generation. Psalm 78.6 says, God commanded the psalmist's fathers to teach the law to their children so that the generation to come might know even the children yet to be born. And Psalm 145.4 says, One generation shall praise your works to another. This was a small sampling of the places in which Ganea is used in the New Testament and in the Septuagint. I left out others because they use it in the same way, as clearly referring to the people alive at a particular time. But there are a few seeming exceptions to this use of Ganea, and I would be remiss, ne to, remiss to neglect them. Before we look at them to see if they support an alternative understanding of Ganea, I think it's important to stress that these comprise a small minority of the places in which Ganea is used. The understanding we've looked at is the meaning clearly intended by the vast majority of its uses, so it really should be considered the surface reading of the text in Matthew 24:34. Furthermore, and perhaps more importantly, none of these seeming exceptions we're going to look at occur within the phrase, this generation which we'll look at in depth shortly. So whatever we conclude about these few places in which Ganea might mean something different than the people alive at a point in time, we should assume that that's not the meaning intended by Jesus in the Olivet Discourse until it can be shown otherwise. That disclaimer out of the way, let's take a look. When it comes to the New Testament, in preparing for this episode, I stumbled upon an article called Why Partial Preterism is Incorrect. You who have listened to me in the past know I can't stand the phrase partial preterism, but unfortunately that's what it's called in this article, so I'm just going to have to roll with it. Anyway, in this article, the author makes a bold claim. He writes, all should agree that Ganea cannot mean generation in two places, Acts 8.33 and Luke 16.8. Now regarding the former, this, article, or this author cites Acts 33 as saying, who will recount his or Jesus' generation? And then goes on to say, generation here has to mean descendants. Although he doesn't go into more detail than that, I'm assuming that the author's point is that since Isaiah 53, which is the passage that the Ethiopian eunuch was reading in Acts 8.33, since it says in Isaiah 53, uh, in verse 8, that, Ma that Messiah was taken away, the phrase, who will recount this genera his generation, must be implying that he will have no descendants. And so therefore, one couldn't recount his descendants. Unfortunately for this particular critic of preterism, his argument falls flat. The original Hebrew of Isaiah 53.8 is rendered differently by a number of translations. The King James basically reads like Acts 8.33, saying, Who shall declare his generation? But the NIV reads, Who of his generation protested? And it offers as an alternative translation, Who of his generation considered that he was cut off from the land of the living? The NASB reads like that alternative, as does the Amplified Bible, as does the English Standard Version. Now, it is true that most translations render Acts 8.33, who shall declare his generation? And every translation of the Septuagint that I've found renders Isaiah 53.8 this way as well. But the Amplified Bible renders Acts 8.33 this way, who can describe or relate in full the wickedness of his contemporaries or generation? Now, the Amplified Bible is inserting some words there, which is kind of the point of the Amplified Bible, to amplify the text. Still, it clues us into an important fact. The Septuagint, and Luke's quoting it in Acts 8.33, doesn't necessarily rhetorically ask who can describe Jesus' descendants. Instead, it may be asking who can describe his generation, since it was that evil, wicked generation that brutally murdered Messiah. This critic's argument, therefore, simply holds no water. As for Luke 16.8, the author of the article cites it as reading, For the sons of this age are more prudent than the sons of light themselves are in their generation. Now, the author doesn't say more than that, and if I hadn't done my research, I wouldn't have any idea how this verse supports his case. But looking at other translations, I think I understand the argument. The NIV reads, The people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind. The NASB also renders Ganea kind, and the Amplified Bible suggests this as a possible meaning as well. But the Amplified Version does read generation as its primary reading. The King James Version reads this way, as does the, as does the ESV. These translations allow us to understand the passage as, as saying that the unbelievers of that time are more shrewd in dealing with their contemporaries. And the New Living Translation reads, The children of this world are more shrewd in dealing with the world around them. 
So we have no reason not to understand Ganea as here referring to Jesus' contemporary generation. As I said, the argument this article's author tries to make simply falls flat. <coughs> Excuse me. Now, before we look at this author's and other critics' claims regarding Ganea in the Old Testament, there is one more seeming use of the word generation to which some might point as evidence that it can mean something other than a generation of people alive at some time. The New King James Version renders 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people. Of course, it would seem here that generation means people or race or something along those lines, and, you know, that certainly fits best with the rest of the verse, but... And guess what? The word genea isn't there. Instead, it's the word genos, which, as we've already seen, does mean race. So hopefully no thoughtful critic of preterism would point to this verse. Now the article I mentioned goes on to claim, in the Septuagint Greek translation of the Old Testament, genea cannot mean generation in Genesis 31.3 and Numbers 15.14. Now I actually had come across Genesis 31.3 in the Septuagint and the challenge it poses to the preterist understanding of genea, and I've prepared a response before stumbling upon this article, so I'm going to skip it for now, but I'll come back to it in a little bit. But what about Numbers 15.14? Here's how the NASB renders it. If an alien sojourns with you, or one who may be among you throughout your generations, just as you do, so he shall do. Uh, what? Ganea can't mean generation here? <laughs> Excuse me? The NIV reads for the generations to come. The Amplified Bible, the King James Version, the New King James Version all read similarly. God's Word translation, whatever that is, reads, Suppose foreigners are visiting you or living among you in future generations. Listeners, those of you who don't accept what we preterists are saying, if you don't buy our argument, fine. But let me offer you just a word of advice. If you're going to critique us, don't make such obvious errors like this one. Do your homework, because if you don't, you're just going to make the position you're critiquing seem more plausible. Anyway, we're going to come back to this article a little bit later. For now, let's look at a claim made by Fred Butler in a comment at my blog. He wrote, Deuteronomy 32.5 and 32.20 have to do with their, their faithfulness, not merely their contemporaneous nature. And I responded to him, writing, I agree that faithlessness is a key aspect to what the author is saying, but look what Moses goes on to say in verse 7. Remember the days of old, consider the years of all generations. Ask your father and he will inform you, your elders, and they will tell you. Again, Ganea is used, and what this demonstrates conclusively is that the author has in mind his current faithless generation. So these are not verses which could be used to support an alternative understanding of Ganea. Next look at the seeming exceptions to Ganea meaning generation that I was able to find. The Septuagint uses Ganea in Esther 9, 27, and 28 in a way which seems like it might support an alternative meaning, seemingly translated a Hebrew word meaning descendants. But in fact, it seems to me that the Septuagint translators reworded the original text. The Hebrew of Esther 9.27 reads, The Jews established and made a custom for themselves and for their descendants and for all those who allied themselves with them so that they would not fail to celebrate these two days according to their regulation and according to their appointed time annually. Now the Septuagint begins, And Mardacaeus established it, and the Jews took upon themselves and upon their seed. But I'm going to interject here for a moment because the word seed there isn't Ganea, it's sperma. It goes on, these days were to be a memorial kept in every generation and city and family and province. And the Greek word translated into English as generation is genea, thus putting it in the same category as the vast majority of its uses as we've already looked at. Similarly, the end of verse 28 in the Hebrew reads, these days of Purim were not to fail from among the Jews or their memory fade from their descendants. The last word of this verse in the Septuagint is Ganea, and it would seem then that they were using the word to mean kindred or family or something like that, just like the Hebrew reads. But the whole verse reads like this in English. These days of Purim, said they, shall be kept forever, and their memorial shall not fail in any generation. So the Septuagint's use of Ganea in Esther 9, 27 and 28 actually supports what we preterists are saying. Now the Hebrew of Jeremiah 8.3 reads in English, Death will be chosen rather than life by all the remnant that remains of this evil family. The Septuagint uses Ganea seemingly to translate family, and as a result, some English translations of it likewise read all the remnant that are left of that family. But this isn't true of all English translations of the Septuagint. The New English translation of the Septuagint reads, For all the remnants that remain of that generation. This is also how Peter Paputis renders it in what I think is the lectionary of the Eastern Orthodox Church. This is also true of Jeremiah 10.25, which in the Hebrew reads, Pour out your wrath on the nations that do not know you and on the families that do not call your name. Again, the Septuagint appears to translate families using Ganea, 
And certainly some English translations likewise read upon the families that have not called upon thy name. But the same two translations I mentioned earlier read upon generations that have not called upon thy name. There just doesn't seem to be any conclusive evidence that the translators of the Septuagint had in mind a different meaning for Ganea when they translated these two verses in Jeremiah. And it's well known that they often reworded the text they were translating. We've already seen an example of that. So there's really no warrant for insisting that they intended the same meaning for Ganea as the Hebrew word for families. Numbers 13, 22, and 28 refer to the descendants of Anak, and in these two verses, the translators of the Septuagint used Ganea as well. Some English translations of the Septuagint therefore render these verses the progeny or children of Anak, and Peter Papoutsis does the same, but the new English translation of the Septuagint that I mentioned earlier refers to generations of Anak. And it's important to recognize that this passage refers to Anakites that were then living, not some future progeny. So one can hardly argue compellingly that the Septuagint here offers support for an alternative understanding of Ganea. This is true, too, of Genesis 31.3, where the article I talked about a minute ago insists that it cannot mean generation. In it, the Lord says to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. The King James Version renders it kindred instead of relatives, and the Hebrew word is moladet, and refers to kindred or offspring or relatives, that kind of thing. Now, the 22 times that this word is used, three of those, the translators of the Septuagint, used Ganea to translate this Hebrew word. Here in Genesis 31.3, again in Genesis 43.7, which says the man kept asking about us and our family, and again in Numbers 10.30, which reads, I will go to my own land and relatives. Now, unfortunately for me, <laughs> the translations of the Septuagint that rendered Ganea as generation in some of the verses we looked at moments ago, both render it kindred or family in these three places. And I'll concede that these three uses of Ganea in the Septuagint do pose a slight challenge to the preterist contention that Ganea always means generation in the way we typically understand it. But a few things lead me to believe the translators probably had generation in mind when they used the word. First, as we've seen thus far, the vast overwhelming majority of places in which Ganea is used, it means generation in the way we preterists understand it. So far, in fact, we haven't seen a single place in which it can be insisted that it means something other than that. I think it's reasonable, therefore, to start from there and see if these three verses can't be understood in this way. Second, had the translators wanted to convey the meaning of kindred or relatives, they could have used the word sungenaya. In fact, they did use it to translate moladet in some places. Genesis 12.1 reads, The Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives. That word relatives is moladet in the Hebrew, sungenaya in the Septuagint. Or they could have used genos, as they did in Esther 2.10, where Esther did not make known her people or her kindred. Again, they're the translators of the Septuagint translated Moladet, but they used genos. Or they could have used laas, as they did in Esther 8.6, to translate Moladet, my people, and in Jeremiah 46.16, to translate it, our people. Third, there is a clue in these verses that generation might be the intended meaning. Genesis 31.3 reads, The return to the land of your fathers... And here the Septuagint uses the Greek word pater, meaning father. Now, a reference to the land of one's fathers, specifically, might justify the addition of a word meaning generations. Numbers 10.30 doesn't include fathers, but the concept of this is the same. Go to my own land and relatives. And in Genesis 43.7, Joseph's brothers tell their father that Joseph had asked them about their father and brothers. Again, language which lends itself to an understanding of generation. For these reasons, I'm inclined to believe that the translators used Ganea in these places in the same way they used it everywhere else, to refer to a generation of people alive at a certain time. Besides, as I mentioned, what was true of Numbers 13, 22, and 28, in which Ganea is used to refer to a generation of Anakites then living, is also true of these three places in which the relatives spoken of are still alive. In fact, in commenting on Genesis 31.3, John Gill writes that here kindred or relatives refers to his father and mother and brother who all dwelt in the land of Canaan at this time, or as many as were living. So even in the three places where critics of preterism pose a slight legitimate challenge to our contention, they're pointing to places in which the people being referred to are then living, which basically supports our insistence that when Jesus speaks of this generation, he's speaking of his contemporaries. And again, even if we were to grant that all of these passages we've looked at are genuine exceptions to the normal understanding of Ganea in the Septuagint, we still see an overwhelming majority of uses which do carry that meaning. And thus we should assume that's probably the meaning in the Olivet Discourse. So these are all the places I've found where one might try to claim that Ganea must mean something other than a generation of people alive at a time. 
and as we've seen, a close examination of all of them refutes the contention that they must mean kindred or something like that. No, the meaning of generation is compatible with each of them. But before we lo uh, move on to look at the phrase this generation, I do want to briefly address two additional arguments that critics of preterism might make. First, in the King James Version, verses 11 through 14 of Proverbs 30 each start with, There is a generation. Verse 11 says such a generation curses their father. Verse 12 says it thinks itself pure in its own eyes, and so forth. The Hebrew word is dor, which is often used to refer to a generation of people in time, and which is often translated genea in the Septuagint. But in the NIV, verse 11 begins, there are those, and the subsequent verses use those as well. The NASB repeatedly says there is a kind of man, and the Amplified Bible says there is a class of people. Now I could see someone arguing, therefore, that here's an example where the word elsewhere translated generation must mean something other than a generation of people in time which is why the translators of the NIV, NASB, Amplified Bible, and others render it differently. But this argument just doesn't hold up to scrutiny. For one, there is no reason the author couldn't be saying, there is a generation that curses their father, and there is a generation that are pure in their own eyes, and so forth. It reads this way in the King James and New King James, and it's not nonsensical or anything. And the NASB and ESV footnotes acknowledge this as a legitimate translation. For two, and perhaps more relevant, the Septuagint doesn't use the word genea in these verses. Instead, it uses a form of the Greek word ekgenos, which means offspring or descendants. As such, the New English translation of the Septuagint reads, Wicked progeny curses its father. Wicked progeny judges itself righteous. So the original Hebrew can be understood to refer to a generation of people in time. But even if we accepted that it doesn't, the translators of the Septuagint didn't use genea anyway. So this passage, this passage doesn't do any damage to the preterist position. Second, one further claim is made by at least one critic of preterism, the author of the article we've been looking at. In it, he writes, In many cases, the meaning of Ganea is broad. It definitely means generation and time, but also definitely means descendants. And then he goes on to list 18 such places in the New Testament and 35 times in the Septuagint. Now, as I read this, my first instinct was to go and look at each one of them and see if the author's contention is correct. But something dawned on me. When we preterists say Jesus was pronouncing judgment upon this generation, that is, his generation, we're not saying he was condemning every human being on the planet of that generation. No, we're saying he was pronouncing judgment upon his contemporary generation of apostate Jews. Those Jews steeped in the Old Testament who had no legitimate reason for rejecting him, and yet did so anyway. Because, as Jesus said in John 8:44 to the descendants of Abraham, they were children of the devil. So, of course, Ganea can refer to a limited kind of people or of certain ancestry, but the preterist contention is that whatever kind of people it is referring to, it's referring to a generation of those kinds of people alive during a certain time. So when the author of this article lists 53 places in the Bible where it, quote, definitely means generation in time, but also definitely means descendants, I say fine. <laughs> All he's done is added support to the preterist case. Alright, so we've looked at how Ganea is used throughout the New Testament in the Septuagint, and we see that it consistently refers to a generation of people alive during a particular time. I think this alone demonstrates that although Christians have understood Matthew 24:34 in some eight different ways as outlined by Donald Green, most of those interpretations do such injustice to the meaning of Ganea that they don't really warrant any serious consideration. No, Jesus wasn't speaking of the human race, or of, or of faithful Christians, or of the Jewish race, or of people of a wicked disposition, or anything like that. But despite how resoundingly I think the survey we've done of Ganea in the Bible refutes those views, I think the case can be made even more powerful by looking at the phrase, this generation. This is important, because although most non-preterist interpretations of the Olivet Discourse understand this generation to refer to something other than a generation of people in time, there is one which doesn't. Some think that this generation does refer to a generation of people in time, but refers to a future generation of people, the one which will be alive at the time that Jesus' prophecies are fulfilled. As we'll see, a survey of the phrase this generation, as it is used throughout the Bible, will dispel that notion, as well as any other non-preterist interpretation of the Olivet Discourse. But before we do that survey, I did discover something in preparing for this episode that I had never seen before. Back when I interviewed Dee Dee Warren, she said that she doesn't insist, as some preterists do, that had Jesus intended to refer to some future generation, he would have used the phrase, that generation. She thinks that such an insistence is pedantic, and at the time I agreed, but what I found out in researching for this episode is that biblical authors have at times done just that. In Hebrews 3.10, the author quotes the Old Testament as saying, that is why I was angry with that generation. 
It probably goes without saying that generation there is Ganea. But what's interesting to note is that the word that is akenos, which means, well, that, or those, he, they. That's not the word Jesus uses in Matthew 24, 34. There he uses hutos, meaning this. To which generation is the author of Hebrews and the author of the Old Testament passage he cites referring? Well, the author of Hebrews is quoting Psalm 95.10, and here's how the surrounding passage reads. Today, if you would hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as in the day of Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers tested me. They tried me, though they had seen my work. For forty years I loathed that generation, and said they are a people who err in their heart, and they do not know my ways. So God is talking about a past generation of people, not the generation of people alive when the psalmist wrote these words. And how does he refer to the former generation? As that generation. And sure enough, that's exactly how the translators of the Septuagint rendered Psalm 95.10 using Achanos. Now when I saw this, I began to wonder if perhaps the insistence by some preterists that Jesus would have used that generation might not be quite as pedantic as I once thought. And what I went on to discover was that these verses don't exist in isolation. The first chapter of Exodus lists the names of Israel and his sons who had come out, uh, who had come to Egypt. And in verse 6, it reads, Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. The author is recording history, not quoting somebody, not giving a narrative of something taking place. He's speaking of a past generation, one which had died out by the time the new king had arisen over Egypt. And how does he refer to said past generation? As that generation. And again, the Septuagint uses a kainos. The author of Judges in chapters two, uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, says that Joshua died and was buried. And then the author goes on in verse 10 to say, All that generation also gathered to their fathers, uh, and there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord. Again, a past generation is spoken of, and again, the Septuagint uses Achanos. Now, those who hold that Jesus was speaking of a future generation may object to my use of these passages, because in them, the authors are referring to a past generation, not a future one. But this objection really doesn't work. You see, if, if such non-preterists are honest with themselves, their basis for believing Jesus uses this generation to refer to a future one isn't really temporal, uh, sorry, it isn't really temporal, it's contextual. Their argument is that because Jesus is talking about events which will serve as signs, therefore this generation refers to the generation of people who will be around to see those signs. They would presumably feel the same way had Jesus been talking about signs which were seen by people in the past, in which case, had he used this generation, it would likewise be argued that the phrase refers to the past generation of people who were around to see those past signs. In the same way, these three places we've looked at use that generation in a certain context to refer to some other generation than the present one, and yet they still felt compelled to refer to it as that generation and not this one. Now, I'm not saying that the existence of four places in the Bible, I said three earlier, I meant four, at least that I'm aware of, in which that generation is used, proves that Jesus would have used that phrase if he hadn't used some future generation. But I do think it, it suggests just that, particularly since, as we'll see, the phrase this generation always refers to the speaker's contemporaries. So let's take a look at that phrase now. We're going to begin our survey with the first place I found the phrase used, Genesis 7-1 which reads, The Lord then said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and your whole family, because I have found you righteous in this generation. The Septuagint here uses Ganea for generation, and a form of hutos meaning this, just like Jesus does. So the phrase is equivalent to his use in Matthew twenty-four thirty-four. And which generation is the one in which Noah was found righteous? Noah's generation, the generation of people alive at that time. Pretty straightforward. Next up is Deuteronomy 135, which reads, Not one of these men, this evil generation, shall see the good land which I swore to give your fathers. Here the Septuagint excludes the reference to this evil generation altogether. But in this survey, we're not so much concerned about the Greek words Jesus uses in Matthew 24:34, but rather with the phrase, this generation, as it is used in Scripture. So, of which evil generation does Deuteronomy 135 speak? Verses 1 and 5 tell us Moses was speaking to the children of Israel. In verse 26, he says to them, Yet you were not willing to go up, but rebelled against the command of the Lord your God. In verse 32, Moses tells them, You did not trust the Lord your God. In verse 34, he says, Then the Lord heard the sound of your words. And then in verse 35, he quotes God as saying, This evil generation shall not see the good land which I swore to give to your fathers. So which generation is in view? Moses' contemporary generation of Israelites who had formerly rebelled. Again, pretty straightforward. 
Psalm 12.7 reads, You, Lord, will keep them. You will preserve him from this generation forever. Now, a couple of translations suggest that perhaps generation isn't the best way to render the original. The NIV, for example, reads, You will protect us forever from the wicked. But most translations do refer to this generation. Still, I suppose the question one might ask is, how could a person be protected from one specific generation forever? Well, the Hebrew word for forever, olam, doesn't necessarily mean everlasting. Exodus 19.9 depicts God saying to Moses, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Now, how could the people who witnessed the cloud believe in Moses forever? Those witnesses would, after all, eventually die. It seems to me the NIV does a better job with this verse, rendering it so that they will always put their trust in you. Exodus 21.6 is probably an even better example, which says, The slave's master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him permanently. That word permanently is olam. And clearly a mortal slave cannot serve a mortal master forever. So the word's use in Psalm 12.7 doesn't necessitate that Ganea refer to wicked kinds of people. Furthermore, the translations of the Septuagint I looked at render it, You will preserve us from this generation and forever. So there's simply nothing in this passage that suggests that this generation, in the Hebrew or the Greek, can refer to anything but the contemporaries of the speaker. And the author is speaking of the treachery of the wicked men who are his contemporaries, and the devastation and groaning of afflicted and needy men who also are his contemporaries. So this generation seems clearly to be a reference to the generation of people alive at that time. One more verse in the Old Testament, Psalm 71.18, says, Let me proclaim your power to this new generation, your mighty miracles to all who come after me. Now this one's interesting. At first I was planning on demonstrating that this is a reference to the psalmist's contemporary generation. Uh, that he asks that God allow him to proclaim God's power to the then-present generation, as well as those who would come after. But as I did some research, I began to suspect that this generation isn't really the best translation at all. Going back to Genesis 7-1, the Hebrew rendered this generation is Bador Hazeh. That word Zeh means this. Similarly, the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 135 rendered this evil generation is Hador Hara'ah Hazeh. Again, the word this is there. Psalm 27, or sorry, Psalm 12, 7 reads, Milhador zu la'olam. And zu also means this. But Psalm 71, 18 reads, Lador lakal yavo. Neither ze nor zu is there. And the Septuagint doesn't include hutas, meaning this, either. It reads, Forsake me not until I shall have declared thine arm to all the generation that is to come. In other words, it seems to me that Psalm 71.18 is speaking not of the present generation and a future one, but only of a future one. Perhaps this is why the NIV renders this verse, Till I declare your power to the next generation, and the ESV renders it, Until I proclaim your might to another generation. And after all, the verse begins with the author asking God not to forsake him when he is old and gray, so that he can be able to proclaim God to whatever generation is in view. If the then-present generation were in view, why would the author need to be old and gray to preach God to them? So yeah, I just don't think Psalm 71.18 uses the phrase this generation at all. So when it comes to the Old Testament, we have apparently three uses of the phrase this generation. Genesis 7-1, Deuteronomy 1:35, and Psalm 12:7, and each of them refers to the then-present generation of people, contemporaries of the speaker. In the New Testament, the phrase this generation is used exclusively by Jesus and is recorded only in the Gospels. And it's at this point in our survey that we're really going to see what Jesus had in mind when he used the phrase. And rather than go through these in the order in which they appear, I want to try and go through them in historical order, uh, in the order in which Jesus said them, at least I'm going to try, which means that we're going to be jumping back and forth between Gospels. In verses 30 and 31 of Luke 7, Jesus says, But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected God's purpose for themselves, not having been baptized by John. To what then shall I compare the men of this generation, and what are they like? He then goes on to compare them to children who refuse to dance to the music of other children playing the flute, and to children who refuse to mourn with other children playing a dirge. The same account is recorded in Matthew 11, where in verse 16 he asks, To what shall I compare this generation? In both cases, it's evident that John the baptizer is being likened to the children playing the dirge, and that Jesus is likening himself to the children playing the flute. But this generation, he says, accused John of having a demon, and accused himself of being gluttonous and a drunkard. Clearly then, Jesus is not referring to some kind of people, but to a people of a particular generation, namely, his generation, his contemporaries, who refused to heed the messages preached by both him and by John who prepared his way. 
In Matthew 12:38, some of the scribes and Pharisees said to Jesus, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. And in the next verse, Jesus responds, An evil and adulterous generation craves a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. He goes on in verse 41 to say, The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment, and will condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up with this generation at the judgment and will condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold something greater than Solomon is here. And after comparing them to an unclean spirit which, having been driven out of a man, returns and brings with it seven other more wicked spirits, in verse 45 he says, that is the way it will also be with this evil generation. Earlier we looked at Deuteronomy 135, which refers to this evil generation, speaking of the generation of people alive at that time. Although those particular words were excluded by the Septuagint, nevertheless, Jesus' words here are certainly reminiscent of them. Can there really be any doubt that he is speaking not of a certain kind of people or some future generation of people, but of his contemporaries? After all, his condemnation is based on the fact that whereas Nineveh repented when Jonah came to them, those to whom Jesus preached refused to repent at the greater person of Christ. That whereas the Queen of the South came from all over to hear Solomon speak, those to whom Jesus preached didn't want to listen to him. And of course, who witnessed the sign of Jonah? That is, Jesus lay dead in the tomb only to rise from it three days later. It's patently obvious that Jesus is speaking about the people who rejected him then because he was there. A similar account is found in Matthew 16, where, after Jesus fed the 4,000, the Pharisees and Sadducees came up, and testing Jesus, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus responds in verse 4, An evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, and a sign will not be given it, except the sign of Jonah. This is recorded in Mark 8 as well, where in verse 12, Jesus says, Why does this generation seek for a sign? Truly I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. Now, of which generation is that Jesus is speaking about? Once again, he speaks of the generation alive at that time, his contemporaries, the Pharisees and Sadducees, the ones, the ones who witnessed the sign of Jonah, which Jesus speaks about. And so he says in Luke eleven twenty nine to 32 this generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign, and yet no sign will be given to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so will the Son of Man be to this generation. The queen of the south will rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh will stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So throughout each of the Gospels, Jesus is pronouncing judgment upon the apostate Jews of his time, that generation, what was to him this generation. The generation of Jews who rejected him, to whom he gave the sign of Jonah, who did not repent when one greater than Jonah, greater than Solomon, preached to them. But his condemnation of his contemporaries only escalates from there. In Luke 11, beginning in verse 42, Jesus begins pronouncing woes upon his generation of Jews. Woe to you, Pharisees, he says, for you pay tithe of mint and rue and every kind of garden herb and yet disregard justice and the love of God. Woe to you, Pharisees, he says in verse 43, for you love the chief seats in the synagogues and the respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Now, do those sound like descriptions of today's or future generations? Or do they sound like the Pharisees to whom Jesus was speaking? Woe to you, he says in verse 44, for you are like concealed tombs. Woe to you, lawyers, he says in verse 46, for you weigh men down with burdens hard to bear while you yourselves will not even touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Matthew 23 records woes as well. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, Jesus says in verse 13, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people, for you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, he says in verse 15, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Now this sounds like first century apostate Pharisees to me, not modern Jews who, it seems to me, aren't really that interested in proselytizing. Woe to you, blind guides, Jesus says in verse 16, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated. <laughs> now, do modern Jews swear by the temple, uh, or do they say that um, whoever swears by the gold of the temple is obligated? No, obviously not. He goes on in verse 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe mint and dill and cumin and have neglected the weight of your provisions of the law. Now, I wonder, do modern Jews tithe mint and dill and cumin? 
<laughs> no. And on and on Jesus goes, pronouncing judgment upon his contemporary apostate Jews. Then, beginning in verse 29, Matthew's account and Luke chapter 11 converge. Woe to you, Jesus says in Luke 11:47, for you build the tombs of the prophets and it was your fathers who killed them. Now, I don't think it can be really clear, uh, or any, any clearer, who built the tombs of the prophets that Jesus is talking about, and thus to whom Jesus is referring. In Matthew 23, 34, he says, I am sending you prophets and wise men and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify, and some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. And these words are recorded in Luke eleven forty nine, where he says, I will send to them prophets and apostles. Who is it that killed and crucified and scourged and otherwise persecuted the prophets and apostles Jesus sent? First century apostate Jews. Not modern Jews, not future Jews. As Jesus said in Luke 17:25, first the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation. The greatest prophet of them all, the son of God, God made manifest in the flesh, Jesus Christ himself would be killed and crucified by his contemporary generation. And so he says in Luke 11:50, the blood of all the prophets shed since the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. Likewise, in Matthew 23, 35, and 36, Upon you will fall the guilt of all the righteous blood shed on earth. Truly I say to you, all these things will come upon this generation. Lest there be any doubt to whom Jesus is referring, that is, upon whom the blood guilt will fall, Jesus goes on in verses 37 and 38 to say, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who were sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. Yes, that this generation, upon whom Jesus placed the guilt of all the righteous blood shed, was the leadership of first century apostate Judaism in Jerusalem. And sure enough, within a few decades after Jesus had said this, Jerusalem's house was left to her desolate when the temple was destroyed. So this is the lead-in to the Olivet Discourse. Jesus pronouncing judgment upon first century Jewish apostates for rejecting their Messiah. And having just been told by Jesus that the temple would be left desolate, his disciples at the beginning of the next chapter, Matthew 24, are pointing out to him the temple buildings. Mark records their words in his gospel in chapter three, uh, 13 verse 1, Teacher, behold what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. One can imagine them expressing doubt that this, this temple of God, the construction of which he himself had commanded, and in which he had made his presence visible, that this, that this temple could be left desolate. In each gospel's account of the Olivet Discourse, in Matthew 24:2, Mark 13:2, and Luke 21:6, Jesus says, "Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left upon another which will not be torn down." So the context of the Olivet Discourse is, having just pronounced judgment on first-century apostate Judaism, having just said that their house will be left desolate, Jesus has shown the marvelous buildings of the temple by his skeptical disciples. And he tells them that the temple, the temple that existed then, and not some, future re, not some future rebuilt temple, would be torn down despite their majesty. Each gospel records his disciples' response, which Luke puts this way in Luke 21.7. Teacher, when therefore will these things happen, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? What are these things? The destruction of the temple that Jesus had just mentioned. Now, Matthew's account adds a little bit to their question. Um, in Matthew 24, 3, it depicts them as asking, When will these things happen, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Now, I'd have to do a whole other episode on what I think the disciples meant by Jesus' coming and of the other, end of the age. We, we talked about that with Dee Dee Warren, so we won't get into that now. But I think it's important to recognize that the context and the disciples' question as a response to Jesus saying the temple would soon be torn down demands that we at least begin with the assumption that the coming and end of an age they were asking about was something they considered to be identical to or concurrent with the destruction of the temple and that it is likely that Jesus answered the question they asked, rather than some question they didn't. Of course, yet another episode, or multiple episodes, would be required to go into why all the events Jesus foretells are capable of being understood as having taken place in that first century. I would recommend listening to D.D. Warren's The Preterist podcast, as she goes through her commentary on the passage for just those details. But the point that I'm trying to make is just that everything about the context leading up to this passage in all three Gospels, and in the beginning of this passage in each of them, points toward a first century fulfillment. And, century, uh, and certain events foretold in the middle of the discourse point toward a first century fulfillment as well. 
Matthew 24:15 and Mark 13:14 both speak of Daniel's abomination of the desolation, saying that when it is seen, those in Judea must flee to the mountains. But Luke 21:20 interprets that for Gentiles, saying, "When you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, then recognize that her desolation is near." Folks, that happened in AD 70. And as we will and as will have to be the subject of yet another episode, faithful Christian Jews in Jerusalem in AD 70 did in fact flee when it became evident that Jerusalem was on the verge of being destroyed. And Luke goes on in verse 24 to say that the Jews would be led captive into all nations and that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Again, something which began at AD 70 and continues to this day. And so it is that after assuring his disciples that their temple would in fact be destroyed, despite their incredulity, Matthew 24:34, Mark 13:30, and Luke 21:32 record Jesus as saying, "Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place." Everything we've looked at thus far, the meaning of Ganea, the meaning of the phrase this generation throughout the Bible, Jesus' condemnation of first century apostate Judaism leading into this passage, and the disciples' questions about the impending destruction of the temple which Jesus had prophesied, it all points to a first century meaning for Jesus' use of this generation in the Olivet Discourse. As one final bit of evidence before we conclude today's episode, I'm going to turn to an argument Dee Dee Warren makes in her commentary on the Olivet Discourse, and which she made when I interviewed her. Jesus talks a lot about his coming, whatever it is that that means, in the Olivet Discourse, in all three Gospels. Matthew 24:33 says, When you see all these things, recognize that he is near. And in Luke 21:31, the author has Jesus saying, When you see these things happening, recognize that the kingdom of God is near. And the following verse in both passages has Jesus saying, This generation will not pass away before these things take place. So Jesus says he is coming and that the kingdom of God is near and that his generation would not pass away until he and it came. Now compare this with Matthew 16:28, in which Jesus says, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. So just as in the Olivet Discourse speaks of his coming in the kingdom of God, so too does Jesus here speak of his coming in the kingdom of God. With all the gymnastics that critics of preterism perform to try and avoid the obvious meaning of this generation, all of which as we've seen fail, they have none of their attempts at their disposal when it comes to this connection between Matthew 24, 33 to 34, Luke 21, 31 to 32, and Matthew 16, 28. As D.D. Warren puts it, the parallels are seemingly inescapable. Thus, Matthew 16, 28 gives us then the definition of this generation not passing away. It means some of those standing there will not taste death until. You know what? She's absolutely right. That's precisely what it means. Let me begin to wrap up by saying to many of you listening, this may all be very new to you. You've read this passage before and some 2,000 years removed from when these words were spoken. Naturally, you've assumed that what Jesus talked about here was his second coming and the final judgment of the world, all of which is yet to happen in our future. Perhaps you've read Jesus' statement that this generation will not pass away until all these things take place and found yourself troubled, as was the case with Dee Dee Warren when she first saw this. Or perhaps you read commentaries which said this generation is a reference to the human race or the Jewish race or people of an evil disposition or some generation alive in our future when these events begin to take place. And you've just assumed that their interpretations were legitimate interpretations, uh, legitimate alternatives, that is, to the surface level reading. Or perhaps you've done the research and because you were convinced that Jesus' prophecies could not possibly refer to events which have already taken place, you've clung to some of the exceptions we've looked at as allowing for an alternative to the otherwise obvious meaning. Whatever your particular situation, please believe me, I know that many of the things Jesus says would happen seem like they couldn't have happened in the past. And I understand the desire in taking the word of God seriously to treat it literally whenever possible. I understand that it seems like allowing for symbolic language is opening a Pandora's box of sorts, and that all of a sudden now you've got to accept symbolic interpretations of all sorts of texts you think should be taken literally. Certainly many texts should be taken literally, and I will stand by your side fighting against liberal interpretations of them. I am, after all, a young earth creationist. But many genuine biblical doctrines are taken to unbiblical extremes by those who would take an opening too far. Many take the free forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ alone too far, as license to live in sin. Many take the reformed doctrines of grace too far, saying we shouldn't even witness to unbelievers. And many other examples could be thought of as well. But the extreme to which some groups will take something which might otherwise be true is not reason enough to reject it. If the Bible says something, we must believe it, even if others will take the opening and run with it to an unjustified level. 
So here's what I think we've seen today, and I've said it before, but I'm going to repeat it one last time before I close. Number one, the Greek word genea was consistently used by the authors of the New Testament and by the translators of the Septuagint to refer to a generation of people alive at some point in time. Uh, number two, other Greek words including genos, sungenia, and laas were consistently used to refer to families, peoples, races, kinds, etc. And had Jesus intended any of those meanings, he had those words at his disposal. Number three, a few times biblical authors used the phrase that generation to refer to a generation other than the present one. And had Jesus intended to refer to some future generation, he had that phrase at his disposal. Number four, the phrase this generation is used by the authors of the New Testament and by the translators of the Septuagint to refer to the presently alive generation of people. And Jesus would have used it that way too. Number five, throughout the Gospels, Jesus consistently uses the phrase in just that way, pronouncing judgment upon first century apostate Judaism for rejecting her Messiah. Number six, leading into the Olivet Discourse, Jesus pronounces judgment upon this generation and tells it that their house would be left to them desolate, and then told his disciples that the then present temple would be destroyed, prompting them to ask about the signs that would indicate that that was about to happen. And number seven, Matthew 24, 33 to 34, and Luke 21, 31 to 32, connect the coming of the Son of Man with the kingdom of God being near. And Matthew 16, 28 does so as well, which means that this generation shall not pass away before all these things take place, means what is said in Matthew 16, 28, that some who are standing here will not taste death until they take place. So despite Donald Green's assertion to the contrary, Jesus' meaning of this generation is, in fact, indisputably clear. Interpreters throughout the ages may have clung to alternative understandings because of their uh, conviction that the events Jesus foretold could not possibly have happened. But the fact that such interpretations exist does not mean that the meaning isn't obvious. No, it is obvious. And if we're to worship God in spirit and in truth, as he said to the woman at the well, as the kind of worshiper the Father desires, then we've got to accept what Jesus said in the God-breathed Theopneustos scripture in his Olivet Discourse that all the events he foretold would take place before his contemporaries, his first century apostate Jews, would pass away. And having accepted that, we can then look to understand what events he was really talking about, which is something that we'll do in many future episodes to come. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode and have found it informative, even if you don't ultimately agree with my argument. If you don't, though, I encourage you to go back and listen again once or twice, taking notes and doing the research for yourself. At the very least, if in the end you don't agree with me, at least you'll be better informed, and we'll be able to avoid making the kinds of mistakes that some of the critics of preterism I've mentioned make. I don't know yet what the topic of the next episode will be, perhaps the International House of Prayer, perhaps physicalism, perhaps Mike's and my debate post-mortem, but whatever it ends up being, I hope you'll join me for the next episode of the Theapologetics Podcast. Until then... Thank you.